Christ's name we pray. Amen. So kids can be dismissed up through third grade, through third grade. So if you're going into third grade this fall, uh, I encourage you to uh, step out. You can, you can go out if your parents want you to go out. Um, that's fine. And uh, for kids who are sitting here in the service, I also um, just want to encourage you uh, in our bulletin. In our bulletin, we have uh, an outline. And I do a reward-based program for kids if they turn in eight of these completed to me with their name, um, I do reward them for their effort. And uh, it's, a nice, it's a nice digestive prize. And it tastes well. It tastes good, I think. Um, so I think uh, people will, they will enjoy that. Um, so if you're here with us, turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Um, the uh, Pew Bible, that's on page 900. And six, 906. And today's uh, sermon title is brought to you by the stop sign. The danger of familiarity. It's so often that we can we can see things, and because of its familiarity, we can. Just roll right through it, and uh, we can become very accustomed to the grace of Jesus Christ, and we can just roll right through it and not take it for the weight that it has, the weight and meaning that it has in our lives. And uh, I use the word danger because we are actually, when we don't fully appreciate God's grace, we are... We're limiting the, the flourishing that we potentially might reap through recognition of his grace. So in the sense of it's not, you're not going to get the most out of your relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, there is that sense of loss and danger. And uh, so we're picking up in Malachi. Last Sunday we, discussed, we, we looked at God's loyal love being demonstrated to Israel, this week, Israel, or the Lord actually picks up a dispute with Israel, claiming that they don't really love him as what they ought to in return. And like a marriage, uh, there is this dialogue that goes back and forth, and uh, there's descriptions of worship, how they worship in the Old, Te Old Testament, but these are pictures of a marriage covenant between God and his people. And there's great application for us as Christians. And so I just set this up as we read in verse 6 this morning. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer that which is lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you, you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And its fruit, that, it's, that is, its food may be despised. 
But you say, what a weariness this is. You snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring that which has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. This you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord that which is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. On March 27th, 2022, there was a slap that was heard around the world. At the Academy Awards, Chris Rock made a questionable joke about Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. It actually feels like ancient history now. Just the world is just turning so fast. But at that event, Will Smith begins laughing. Everyone is laughing, but she's not laughing. And he gives, she gives her, him the evil eye, and he jumps into action. He starts yelling at Rock at the front. He walks right up to the front and gives him a, a flat-handed slap right across the face, as you can see right here. The whole event is absolutely bizarre. I, honestly, I didn't, I didn't stay up for that. I heard about it the next morning. It was everywhere. It was just bizarre, and actually Hollywood itself is very bizarre. But the craziest part of that moment was when Jada looked to Will to vindicate her honor as a loyal husband. That's really wild. Because both are without honor because neither he nor she has kept the marriage bed without defile. They truly don't honor the commitment that they had made years ago. You know, we live in a very twisted world where people think that they're being faithful to their marriage if they make pre-arrangements to give each other permission to be promiscuous. We are in a really warped world when this is considered to be acceptable. Uh, true love, actually, we would say, and we do say it's unconditional, but that doesn't mean that true love can't expect return. In fact, in a marriage, for there to be flourishing between a man and a woman, we have to guard the relationship together. Human flourishing occurs when we live to serve one another, not to abuse one another. And that's what happens when we dishonor our spouse. Something terrible happens. Our own souls begin to wither. We are not be being what we were created to be when we dishonor our spouse. There is a declining. But, you know, God is very merciful. And I want to bring this back here to the reality is that while God has designed marriage to protect us, God is also merciful to those who have not had a marriage as they would have hoped. In fact, there are people who are in a marriage and they get sinned against. God cares for those people. He also forgives those who have sinned against another and who those who are humble. The reality is, is that Jesus forgives so that we may freely forgive others and those who sin against us. And I, I highlight this, this idea of marriage and covenant and the need to guard and to honor because on a micro level, marriages picture the greater relationship that we have with God himself. God commits to us unconditionally and when we respond to him, he, he gives us his love, but he has expectation from us as covenant keepers. Now, we can't keep the covenant perfectly with him. We can't always follow everything that he asks us to do. His love is unconditional. But he still knows that what's best for us will be seen in our response to what he asks us to do. 
just like in a marriage. When we honor the marriage, we thrive together. And so it's an important metaphor. And in this text, we see how faith in God's loyal love ought to motivate us to honor Him. And we have to believe that God has a loyal love for us, and it ought to motivate us to honor Him. In verse 6 through 7, we find the first way in which we honor Him. There are three ways, I think, that I can see in this text in which we, we demonstrate our faith in His loyal love, and we honor Him, first of all, by revering His holy name above all. We revere His holy name above all. Verses 6 through 7, we see this back and forth. It's like a, almost like a, uh, it's like a little bit of a courtroom drama or maybe even a domestic dispute. There's like this argument going on. The Lord's, uh, you know, claiming that He loves Israel and Israel says, no, I don't think I see that. How do you, how do you demonstrate to me that you, you actually love me? And so God gives his reasons. And now God's turn. Israel, I don't think that you really love me the way that you ought to love me. Well, how come you say that? And so God gives his reasons. And so you have this dispute going on. And in verse 6, he brings up two other kinds of covenants that are normal. Covenant keeping, in which honor is expected. And a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? This is a unique metaphor because God makes the claim to be united to Israel like a, like a husband to a wife, but also like a father to a child. It, when, when Israel came up out of Egypt, it was like they were born. They became instantly his own son. He brought them, as it were, through the waters of the Red Sea, and he's birthed, he's birthed them out. But they've also become a son, a servant son, and there are expectations that he has for them now. And so all of these metaphors are united together around commitment and covenant-keeping. Covenant I want to I just take a moment, though, before I proceed in further, to make a note and address how the universal parent covenant in creation is being trampled on today. It's probably clear to us that marriage is covenantal, but it probably fails us to understand how the parent and child relationship is also covenantal. See, covenants have blessings and curses to them, and one of the blessings of marriage, the marriage covenant, is the act of marriage itself. And in, and in the mutual covenant keeping, a new covenant comes out of that prior commitment. You have a new kind of covenant that comes through the birth of a child in which that child had no desire to be born. There was no um, awareness of anything. And when they come out, the parents who commit together to produce that child are making a statement that they were willing now to care for that child from conception up through adulthood, in which they can be independent covenant keepers themselves. This pictures, in many ways, the great covenant that God made with mankind when he created man and woman. They didn't want to be born. They didn't want to be created into the world. But yet God had determined to have a relationship with, with these people, and he provides care, and he maintains the world for them. We have the regularity of the seasons because God exercised his covenant-keeping quality to make a commitment and keep it to mankind. We live in a wicked, wicked society that removes the act of marriage 
and our human sexuality from covenant-keeping responsibility. I know I'm treading out here in a, perhaps, a controversial area, but contraceptives downplay the covenant aspect of our binary sexuality. Because it removes the responsibility to care for a child that would be produced through a covenant activity. The Lord claims a sovereign right over the care of children. And he gives to man and woman that primary responsibility to care for children out of their covenant-keeping relationship. As I said, we live in a wicked society that just has commercialized that which is covenantal. Commercialized it as if it's cheap, a commodity. And so it's really important to see the significance of the commitment in covenant keeping. This is at the very root of God's argument with Israel that they're not responding to their responsibilities. And the Lord claims here in verses 6 and 7 that they have despised his name. So they're not giving honor to God. They're not fulfilling their responsibility. And in verse 7, excuse me, verse 6, there's this back and forth. He says, you've despised my name. She says, how have we despised your name? He says, you've polluted my food. She says, well, how have we polluted your food? He says, in verse 7, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Now, why would a lack of care in the sacrifice mean that they have a low regard for God's name? We don't often associate significance to names in our culture, not like in the ancient world, but it's important for us to understand the significance of God's name. And I want us to think about and associate in our minds the great weight that is attached to God's name. And in Scripture, when talking about the name of God, there is often another word that's used to mean the same thing. It's It's the word glory. When we hear the word, and the name of the Lord... We often in the same phrase, in the same sentence will hear, and the glory of God, as if they're synonyms the same. For example, when Moses, up on Mount Sinai, said to God, I want to see your glory, God grants his request, but he's not visualizing the glory as he perhaps wanted to, but instead, he hides behind a rock and God proclaims the name before him. The name before him. And so what this means is that God's name has an inherent glory to it and it ought to be held in high regard. Now, the Hebrew word... Honor is a word which we've probably heard before, and maybe I've mentioned this before, in the story written by Washington Irving, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Maybe you remember that awkward school teacher who came to Sleepy Hollow, New York, and was trying to court the, court the school teacher. Remember his name? Ichabod Crane. Beautiful name, Ichabod. That would be a great name for parents these days, right? No, it wouldn't be actually, because it means literally the glory has departed. It was a very ironic and fitting name for, for this character in Washington Irving, Irving's uh, tale. But the word you can hear, Ich, ich kavod, kavod. 
That kavod is the, the glory. Ich, like it's awe, it's no longer there. And that word is a really remarkable word because it has different figurative uses in Scripture. In its basic sense, that word kavod means like heavy. It means heavy. But as you know, words can take on different flavor of meaning, right? You can use a word in a context where you're tired and everything you're doing just feels heavy. It's wearisome. It's like annoying. It's just like, I can't, I can't push this boulder up the hill anymore. It's heavy. It's wearisome. That's kavod. But there is also another use of that word, and it's the same word. And it means something more favorable. It has the idea of weight in terms of riches, respect, glory, honor, greatness. Like in this text, multiple times, God says, I am a great king. But there's another time, though, where what they're doing, God says, what you're doing, you're, you're sniffing, you're, you're not even, you're, you're not really caring about my offering. You consider it to be a burden. You consider it to be weariness. And it's really remarkable here, these slight nuances and the meaning that is inherent in them, to proclaim the name of the Lord is a sacred trust which ought not be taken lightly. He is the great king after all. You know, today's God's name is not really held in high esteem. Um, his name is famous but it's in the wrong sense of fame. Christians ought to be the kind of people who esteem and honor God's name and reserve it for its proper use in worship. We may not realize because of the culture that we live in and, and the frequent use of God's name, it's just very easy to throw it out there, that we're, our society doesn't consider God's name to be weighty. And so it's really important for us to consider how easy it is for that which to us is familiar to become heavy, to be weary, and not to be held in high esteem. God's great love is represented in His name. Let me show you what I mean by this. There is divinity in God's name. We may not realize this. We might say, well, what's in a name? What's in a name? Famous, famous words from Romeo and Juliet. Juliet says, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. You've heard that, now you know where it comes from. But it's an analogy because Juliet loves Romeo. But, but Romeo is part of the house of Montague, the sworn enemies of Capulet. How can he have that name? He is so sweet. What if a rose, to quote Juliet, were called a skunk cabbage, right? That's a real thing, by the way. In time, what would have to happen is that we would change the name of a skunk, and we would change the name of a cabbage because we would have, the smells don't, they don't line up, right? And I find it very, very interesting that, you know, Names are really tools to help us hold on to ideas, sensations. 
I find it very remarkable that when God created man in the very beginning, he, he awakened, he blew the breath of life into Adam, and then one of the first tasks he was given was to name all the animals. What, what being, though, did he not name and give a name to? The only being that Adam never gave a name to was his own creator. And that means that he, the one who creates everything, is filled with such dignity and deserving of great honor that he reserves the right to reveal his name to us. To those who are born again, the name that we say God or the Lord is filled with all kinds of images of God's nature, His perfections. And God guards His name because it is a revelation, His divinity is in it. How is that? That sounds awful crazy to our minds and ears. But think, consider the Apostle John. In John 1, John says this as he starts his gospel account. He says, in the beginning was the Word, Revelation. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh. Well, wait a second. That's crazy. The Word, like, like knowledge, itself became flesh. Flesh became fused with with knowledge, yes, and dwelt among us. And we saw, notice what it says, His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He, that is Jesus, has made him known. I like actually how the King James translates that last phrase, he has made him known. The King James uses the words, he has declared him. And that's significant because when Moses asked to see the glory, God said, I will declare my name before you. That being whom Moses longed to see, the apostles saw with their own hands, they felt him with their hands, they heard him speak to them. John says, we saw his glory, that is his name, in the person of Jesus Christ. This this is remarkable because when we think about God, we're not thinking in abstract terms now. We're thinking in terms of His timeless holiness. We're thinking of His love and His mercy, just as the song that we sang right before the sermon, where love and justice met upon the cross. Jesus' name ought to bring to our minds His loyal love for us. And so if we believe in God's loyalty towards us, then it ought to motivate us to honor and to revere His name. It matters. God is asking, where is, where is my honor? Where is my weight? How are you showing to me as a good covenant keeper that you honor me for my great love to you? Every husband and wife has this right to expect for their covenant keeping a response back to them. And that's how flourishing occurs. And so the second way that we, we, we honor and we demonstrate our loyal love towards God is actually through the purification of our hearts. Through the purification of our hearts. Verses 8 through, verses eight through 12. There's this discussion about table, the table being um, despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, 
God says, is that not evil? And when you offer those who are lame and sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you wouldn't kindle any fire on my altar. A remarkable exchange here as well. We get to the root of why God was offended in verse 7. He's offended because they are making his grace, his kindness, cheap. God's grace is free, but it is not cheap. It is costly. How is this? Well, they're offering blame, uh, blind animals, lame animals, sick animals, and they're saying, literally in verse 8, there's really nothing wrong with that. God really, shouldn't he accept that? And so God sort of turns and says, well, you know, take that to your governor, the one that you, you, who is ruling directly. You can see this governor. You can see him. Is he going to accept that from you? as a symbol of his, of his favor and grace? <laughs> See, Israel had returned to the promised land, but for the moment, they were still under governors from Persia. And consider then how much more the Lord of hosts, the one who, who whispered in the ear of Cyrus to say, now is the time. Let my people go. God is prior to all the circumstances that we experience. All of the divine favor that we experience ultimately comes from His glorious hand. He's worthy of our tribute. How much, well, the, you know, the, the prince of uh, Persia is worthy of, tri of tribute. How much more than the Lord of hosts, the one who has all the armies? all of them. And so, it's in this context in which, in verse 10, we have this domestic fight, it sounds like, like someone's slamming the door, like, I wish that someone would shut the door, don't even come into my temple, verse 10. And there's this, this sense of that no worship is better than insincerity. See in verse 10, oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Is it strange to our ears that God would say to his chosen people, I've got no pleasure in you? That doesn't sound like, that doesn't ring like unconditional love to us. We need to remember that this message from Malachi was to a mixed group of people. There were some in Israel who truly believed and they were, they were trying to give God the best. They were trying to respond to His grace. But there were false people mixed in and so this, this hard sound is written to people who on the lip say, I am a Christian, but yet their life and response to him is less than covenant keeping. You see, when Jesus was beginning his ministry in Galilee, he, he met a man named Nathaniel. And Jesus said of Nathanael when he arrived, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He's living, in other words, like an Israel ought to live, following the commands by faith, looking to God to cover over his own sin, following the commands that he had inherited from his youth. And so, to say one thing with your mouth, but then to operate in a different way is actually, it's insincerity, it's deceit. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus hits the very same theme. 
the need for wholeness of heart, to have consistency between what you say and then what you, how you respond to God from the heart in your worship. Sometimes we can, you know, take a little look. We can fudge the numbers just a little bit. We can get angry and never resolve anger properly. And we could get even with other people. And then we can say, well, once saved, always saved. But when you do that, you're living as a false Christian. Not a perfect Christian, that's not what I'm saying. But you're declaring verbally something that you have no real intention to reconcile. When the Holy Spirit provides input into your heart and says, you need to deal with that issue of lust. You need to deal with that issue of anger. And you just cover it over and say, it's okay. I'm saved. I prayed a prayer when I was a kid. That's, that's not being sincere. That's not, God would say, shut the door. It doesn't, your worship doesn't, I don't want to hear that. Would your spouse want to hear that? Not at all. But the reality is that what's, you know, that's, no worship might be better than that, right? But on the other hand, worship in spirit and truth is far better. That's actually what God wants. And it's available to all who have turned to Christ for salvation. In verse 11 and 12, there's this, this beautiful little statement. It comes off maybe funny in our ears because on the one hand, God is saying to Israel, these, these are not acceptable things that you're doing. But then he says in verse 11, well, from the rising of the sun to the setting, excuse me, the setting of the sun, I lost my place. Verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. And it, on the one hand, it's like saying to Israel, okay, you're not doing what I would want. I'm going to go out to other countries and get what I want from them. That sounds... Bizarre, but in the statement of that, there is also an anticipation of the one day in which a Messiah would come so that the nations would worship in spirit and in truth. There is a day, and there is a day even happening in the mo at the moment where the true worship of God does exist outside of Israel. It is in multiple countries, even now as we speak. But there is an even greater day in which, which God's righteousness and justice will roll and it will flow like a river and overflow the whole of the earth. True worship in the Spirit, which is available to us now because of what Jesus did. He, rising from the dead, grants to us the Spirit. He told the lady at the well in Samaria, <laughs> the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now, how does that work? How do we have true, true worship? True worship in the spirit means being honest and be willing to be burned. To be burned. To be honest, our natural inclination is that when sin is pointed out is to, and it burns, is to run away. That's the, that's the human response. But what we are called to do is actually to run into the burning and be refined. We are called to 
not excuse our sin, but actually run into the flames and say, yes, Lord, purify my heart. It's a response to God's mercy. And we present ourselves, Romans 12 says, as a living sacrifice. The problem with a living sacrifice is that we want to get off the altar. We have to get back up on. It's a daily activity. It's our daily and reasonable worship. In response to His great love for us, He has, he has died for us, and we respond to Him by faith and obedience. We've got to get back up on that altar. We have to admit our sin. And it burns. It feels like fire. But the Holy Spirit must do His work. For example, the Holy Spirit might prompt us to stop letting anxiety rule our hearts. What do we do? We know it is, it is wrong. It's a wrong response to, to whatever is going on inside of us. You could deny and say, well, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. But that way leads towards death. It leads towards a lack of flourishing the way that God has intended you to live. The other way is, though, to confess your sin and to allow the burning to be felt. Because on the other side is the resurrection. On the other side is the flourishing as you put your faith and trust in God who is sovereign over everything that you're experiencing. Flourishing occurs when you believe that you are the object of His great love and you put to death those sins that hold you down. See, faith in God's loyal love ought to motivate us to, to put the right meat upon the altar, to put the right stuff there that God is wanting from us. He does want us to give up those sins which so easily beset us. And there's a third way. So we have, we have revering His name. We have um, purifying our hearts sincerely. There's a third way which we honor Him, and that is through following His Word gladly. Following His Word gladly. The last two verses, um, we see more an attitude here that is condemned by the Lord. He says, but you say, what a weariness this is. You snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. That word snort may sound funny to us, but it is more of the idea of like looking at something and having an instinctual kind of like sniff, like I, I don't, a, a reactive response to it. Maybe like a horse that's standing there and doesn't like your presence. And they snort because you're there. And you say, well, what a weariness this is. And, and what they're communicating is that all this energy, I mean, can't God just accept me for... The fact that I'm an Israelite, you know, I come to church and I, I do all of these things and it's such a weariness. Why should I expend such effort to change and respond to Him? I, um, I really appreciate the work of C.S. Lewis in the last century. He talked about this problem of apathy as a failure to appreciate the, the full weight of God's glory. And I'm, I'm using some of his insights here this morning because they are so, I believe, helpful. God, God asks us to dedicate ourselves to him and to what he's doing in the world. But we grow tired because we don't see that the reward that he offers is worthy of the effort that we would expend 
in our obedience and faith. He uses the analogy of a child who's happy with the um, mud pies that he can make at home. Like he, he, He's never gone to the sea. He's never gone on holiday. He's never experienced what it's like to like make a sandcastle at the seashore. And so he's very easily pleased with just, you know, doing the routine of like, just this is, this is my own little world. He can't visualize the weight of reward that God is going to give us for our obedience. And so ultimately, it is a faith issue. It's a problem. We, we, and it, it affects our attitude. It affects our minds. And we don't follow gladly what God has asked us to do because for some reason, we just like, we stop short and we say, it's just, God is just going to have to accept me. I'm done. And we say, well, we can't envision that there would be a great weight to hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We like to go and we like to go sit at the waterside. We like to go to the lake and we like to, you know, we like to sit, sit in the sun and have the sun suck away the stresses of our life. It's a very enjoyable experience. Some of us have had holidays this summer, and some of us are anticipating holidays in the future. Wouldn't it be nice to kind of like, you know, be on holiday? Always. I mean, some of you all have like holidays that you return to, like places, like you have a cabin or you have like a... Um, a sea caught a, a place you go down to the seashore and you go there and like you plan like you you anticipate all year for going to that place and it's beautiful and you you look at all the glory of what you're seeing but do you realize that the beauty of creation doesn't know whether you come or go What do I mean? We welcome the joy that we anticipate, the beauty that we see, and we're excited to go see it, to hunt it, to do it, or whatever the pleasure is. But there's no return back towards us of excitement because we're there. Lewis says that we are spectators of honor and glory in creation, but there's a hollowness to it. In fact, it can be very painful because, as you all know, at the end of the week, you have to go away. You can't be there indefinitely. And so, in a sense, when we go to that vacation spot, we're like strangers there. There's nothing, there's no reception reciprocalness of this. And I use, he uses this as an, a very helpful illustration because that's the world that we live in. We can't imagine, like, like those are the mud pies that we would make in the street. Going on vacation is like going to heaven and seeing the breathtaking glory of God himself, but then him acknowledging that you were there, that you matter to him. You enter into glory, and God rolls out the red carpet for your arrival. We all go through life looking for recognition. We all, you know, we even, we will work our whole life to build like the perfect retirement home. Like, and I will have the great nest egg so that my little world that I love will be there for me. Or I work really hard in the business and I love hearing 
well done from my supervisor. But that's on an infinite scale to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It may seem crude for us to think that God's glory might involve us being noticed by God, but it is not. It is not. It's the language of the Bible. The disciples doing what they were told in Luke 10, they went out two by two and they were casting out demons and they were doing all these miraculous things and they come back and they tell Jesus, look at all that we did. Look at all these things that we have done. You know what Jesus says? He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in these that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that God knows who you are. 1 Corinthians 8 says, If anyone loves God, he is known by God. He's known by God. We become weary of following God's directive word when we forget that one day we will hear, Well done. Well done. And we like to hear that from those with whom we have respect for in this world. But he is worthy of infinite respect. If we have infinite respect in him, we will anticipate and gladly respond to what he asks us to do. And so in this, this prophet, as he's, he's teaching, he's saying some difficult things to hear but he's also encouraging us to look beyond and say, we have a relationship with, the, with God who has loved us with his loyal love. He's not going to let us go, as the scripture reading tells us. He is not going to let us go. That ought then to motivate us to honor him. Honor him by revering his name above every name. Honor him by actively purifying our hearts, anticipating Him, and thirdly, gladly following His Word. Unconditional love does not negate our need to be good covenant keepers. Just like a marriage, just like a marriage partner, each marriage partner has rights to ask of us that we would guard their honor. Let's guard and revere His name. Let's purify our hearts. Let's follow him gladly because we are known by him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time in the word this morning. I pray, Father, that we would be willing servants, gladly following you. You are a, a merciful God, and, and your love and your justice, they flow towards us like a mighty river. Lord, may we be consumed in that love and anticipate hearing one day, well done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to stand and we're going to close our...